Welcome to Connected Learning TV at Educator Innovator. Today's Wednesday, March 21st, 2018. I'm Joe Dillon. I'm your host for this conversation. I'm a teacher consultant with the Denver Writing Project and a teacher at Rangeview High School in Aurora, Colorado. Today, I've got a great panel here with me to discuss the reading, which is titled Educating for Youth, Online Civic and Political Dialogue, a Conceptual Framework for the Digital Age. This conversation is for the project Marginal Syllabus, and I want to begin by allowing our guests to introduce themselves. Hi, so my name is Erica Hodgen, and I'm the Associate Director of the Civic Engagement Research Group at UC Riverside, um, and also a former middle school and high school social studies and English teacher. Hi, everyone. My name is Paul O, and I uh, am um, a former member of the Western Massachusetts Writing Project. I used to work for the National Writing Project and was involved on the ground in this project in Oakland. And I'm Ramey Collier. I'm an assistant professor of information and learning technologies at the University of Colorado in Denver, and I'm one of the organizers of the Marginal Syllabus Project. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, and so a little bit about the Marginal Syllabus Project. Um, we endeavor to convene and sustain equity conversations in the margins of texts online using the digital annotation tool Hypothesis. So we'll provide you more details about the project in a little bit, but I want to begin by having the author of this month's piece, Erica, give us a little background about the writing of the article. So Erica, really anything you think is important, I think like, you know, would-be annotators are often interested in like some process notes about the writing of the piece but also because this is a you know this work is a reflection of your research you can talk about the research any background that you think is important for readers to know and understand sounds great um and feel free to interrupt me you all if you think you want me to go in different directions or paul please feel free to insert thoughts um, but I guess I'll start with just kind of giving a little bit of a broader picture of where um, this study is sort of a small study that came out of a larger body of work that our team um, was doing and that my colleagues and I were doing out of the Civic Engagement Research Group or CERG. Um, and our work really focuses on understanding youth civic engagement broadly, but in particular how the kind of dynamics of the digital age have impacted that. So, um, and in addition to that, we're really, um, you know, focused on and feel it's very important to sort of understand what kind of learning opportunities will promote high quality and equitable um, civic education for young people and also civic outcomes. So we have been working alongside um, educators and schools and school districts across the country to sort of understand what are what do those opportunities, civic opportunities and also digital civic opportunities look like and how it, can we promote more of those opportunities. So one project that we, um, that Paul sort of mentioned, one project that our team launched in 2012 in partnership with the National Writing Project um, and also with Oakland Unified School District in California um, was a project called Educating for Democracy in the Digital Age. And so, as part of that project, we were really thinking with the district about how to integrate civic learning. And they, um, through the leadership of our colleague, Yangwan Choi, they actually added to their graduate profile. So most schools have these sort of graduate profiles where they're working towards outcomes like college and career readiness. And so um, through this project and through Yangwan's leadership, they, were, um, they added community readiness as another um, attribute of this sort of profile. So, we want all students to be college, career, and community ready, um, which I think is an incredible framing to sort of with, um, you know, the kind of work and thought leadership of teachers, we're really thinking about what does community readiness mean? What does that look like? And so there were kind of three areas of things that we were thinking about, and then teachers were developing content to embed into their classroom various content areas. Um, and so sort of, Three areas we're really thinking about, you know, how do you analyze issues that matter to you? How do young people analyze issues that matter to them? How do they take informed action and how do they also reflect on those issues, on the action that they're taking and also the sort of um, 
engagement that they're having with other people and how that's impacting themselves as civic actors. So what we were, we were doing a lot of, um, you know, sort of observations and interviews with not only teachers and students, um, but also with district leaders. And so one of the things that really piqued my interest was really thinking about civic dialogue in particular. And I really saw that civic dialogue is, was sort of, you know, it crosses all over all of these sort of aspects that we think about community readiness. So it does, you know, as we know, dialogue is key for democracy. Um, in terms of this context of the project in Oakland, you know, we really saw dialogue as being really important to young people understanding and analyzing issues. They hear multiple perspectives. They're able to sort of form their own, own opinion. They're also using it to take action, to raise awareness. We saw them sort of using it as a way to sort of shift the conversation. And then, of course, for reflection, dialogue is key. So I was, you know, I had seen in the literature that there was, there's obviously a lot of important literature around dialogue in democracy and also what, what can dialogue look like in the classroom. One of those is discussion of current and controversial issues. Um, but there's not that much that really looks at what does this mean in the digital age? And so that was a really, I felt like, key need because we saw some of, you know, the teachers that were really in Oakland, they were really eager to sort of understand how do I help young people navigate this online environment? And in particular, how do I help them navigate um, conversation and dialogue about civic, civic and political issues when it happens online? Um, so there's many more opportunities for young people to engage in dialogue, but there's also different kinds of challenges. Um, and as we all know, there are not great models out there for really positive and productive civic and political dialogue, especially online. So we know that it's fraught with a lot of conflict, and we also know that online dialogue um, can turn into hate speech. And so we've seen from some, you know, some research from colleagues um, of mine, Ellen Midoff, for example, and Carrie James um, at Project Zero, that young people um, not only want more support around this, but they also um, witness, it's common that they witness conflict, and the response that is frequent is that they will either shy away from engaging in dialogue um, or silence their own expression. And so that, of course, is something that we do, you know, we don't want to happen. So what does it look like when we really support young people? So these were the kinds of questions that I was thinking about going into this um, study in particular. So I wanted to sort of understand how are teachers engaging young people in online civic dialogue and also from young people's perspectives themselves, how do they experience these kinds of learning opportunities um, in the classroom? So I worked with um, four different teachers. Um, so it was really kind of more focused case studies around three teachers in Oakland. And I also had the opportunity to work with one teacher um, in Utah who had been connecting with these classrooms in Oakland online. So the students um, had been connecting with each other through dialogue, had not met in person. So that was also a really interesting connection to make to that classroom as well. Um, all of these uh, teachers were using the platform um, Youth Voices, which as many people know is a, um, an online academic platform for young people um, to express themselves, to sort of share and write and publish. And it was a platform that was started by um, National Writing Project teachers many years ago. Um, and so while the study focused on Youth Voices, I think that some of the things that came out of the study have implications for other kinds of platforms. So um, I think the sorts of things that you can think about um, on any sort of platform where young people are engaging in dialogue, whether that's edublogs, whether it's through Twitter chats or a sort of Twitter conversation, um, whether it's through other kinds of social media, I think that the kind of implications that I learned um, from working alongside others are applicable. So I guess the big takeaway that I would share, um, and then I'm excited to hear other people's thoughts, um, the big takeaway that I would share is that um, it really is important to think about um, online civic dialogue as a set of opportunities for young people. It's not just one opportunity, that there really are a number of layers of skills and capacities and sort of knowledge that students need in order to understand how to do that well and to feel empowered um, to do that. So I, there were sort of five things, sort of five scaffolds you could think about them that I, that I saw teachers using with young people. 
And um, I would love to share an image actually of these kind of five and then just mention them briefly, but then would love to talk more with you all about them. Um, and, and by no means are these the only five or you have to do them in a certain order. These were just sort of five um, opportunities that I saw across these classrooms happening. So it was a theme that came up in multiple settings. So I'll share this um, brief image and then I'll sort of talk through these five. Let's see. Okay, is that working for everyone? Okay, awesome. Um, so for these five, I think the first one that I would just note that's a really important takeaway is this idea of um, online civic dialogue. It really includes being part of an online dialogic community. So it really is trying to understand, it's really helpful for young people to understand what does that mean and what does that look like? So instead of just putting a blog out there into the world, right, understanding what platform are you using, who is the audience, how does that audience relate to one another, and what's the way that you can engage with that community? It is a community. So how do you sort of understand the dynamics of that depending on the platform that you're in? So really helping to break that down for young people is incredibly helpful. Um, and then the other thing that I found a lot of teachers doing is sort of analyzing discussions of civic and political issues. So before you're engaging, potentially, you analyze what you see happening. So what are the qualities of really informed and thoughtful and productive conversations that you see out there? What are aspects of conversations that are not productive? And unfortunately, there are a lot of those examples out there, but breaking that down for young people to really analyze what do you see happening? And in particular, in the community that you're about to engage in, what do you see happening in that community and analyzing that? A lot of young people, when I talked to them, talked about the value of just being able to see other discussions happening, and in particular, ones where young people were um, having their voices out there. So really being able to access young people's perspectives and voices. And then the third thing I would say is that in terms of engaging in productive dialogue, in many ways, um, in the study that I did, that many of the teachers were using blogging as the format and on youth voices. So for many of the students, before they posted, they commented. So instead of just putting a post out there, you're, also, you're reading other people's posts and then you're thinking about how would I engage in conversation with this person? And not just how would I say, oh, I like what you said. How would you engage in connecting to something that you really appreciated and then asking them a question to engage them in further conversation? So what does that mean and what does that look like? And a lot of the teachers um, on the Youth Voices platform had talked a lot about commenting as a genre in and of itself. So how do we really think about this kind of dynamic back and forth and how do we do that well online and support students to do that? And then the next thing is just that there's a lot to think about in terms of going public. So a lot of students really talked about that they were very excited to go public with their perspectives. It really raised the bar for them in terms of thinking about their writing, if they have an audience beyond their teacher, and how do we really set them up to do that well, and really think about the implications of that for coming out with their sort of civic and political voice. And so that was a very exciting opportunity for young people, and it was often helpful for them to have some lead up and some scaffolding towards that, to not just immediately go out there with their perspectives, but how do you really craft an argument in an online space and what's going to be compelling and what will then invite dialogue and invite people to engage with you. And then of course I think the last step that I just want to bring up is that um, one of the important pieces I think when we think about civic dialogue in particular is how do we help young people move from not just voicing their perspectives, but how do you voice your perspective in a way that has a purpose that moves toward influence? So how do you think about dialogue in the spectrum of what is it you really want to accomplish? Are you trying to raise awareness about X? Who's the right audience to reach? Or how do you craft your argument in a way that does really try to shift the conversation? Um, and really helping young people think about this in a spectrum of putting your voice out there in a particular way and being strategic and thoughtful about that um, to move towards change. So those are the kind of five key takeaways um, that I wanted to share with everyone that I think um, came out of this. And I'm really excited to just hear other people's thoughts, questions, perspectives, and experiences with this. So I really appreciate that background. And I think it's very helpful to launch the discussion. And then just as a as a note about our kind of agenda here, we always like to start with the partnering author providing background because, you know, 
we want you to have the first word about your piece. And then we do transition to a conversation that's kind of akin to a book group conversation where we might sometimes talk about you like you're not part of the conversation. Of course, we're always wanting to include you, but it just seems appropriate to have you have the first word, provide the background, and it gives us an opportunity to thank you for, for letting us, you know, you know, ask folks to annotate your work and think critically ab uh, about your work in a public space where it becomes an open educational resource. So, so that's why you go first. And now I'd like to have invite Ramey just to say a little bit more about the project before we dive into that reader conversation. Thanks, Joe. And most importantly, Erica, thank you. I read your article this morning and was taking furious notes uh, as you were talking. And I'm so excited to launch into this. But before we do so, I'll just very briefly mention that this conversation and the upcoming public annotation is part of a project that we call the Marginal Syllabus. And that name has both very intentional political and also technical connotations. It's a double entendre. Um, from a political perspective, the Marginal Syllabus engages with authors and reads texts and discusses texts that are kind of like a counter-narrative or contrary to dominant conventions of schooling, of education, and certainly themes around civic engagement, youth as civic actors, and influencing civic dialogue and action really resonates with the notions of perspectives that kind of push against the status quo. Um, and from a technical perspective, we organize and facilitate these conversations online using a web annotation tool called Hypothesis. And so the forthcoming conversations after this webinar occur in the margins. And so through engaging both marginal perspectives and also by engaging in the margins, this year we've curated uh, an entire syllabus or a marginal syllabus of texts, all of which concern the theme of civic engagement. And it's been a joy this year to partner closely with the National Writing Project and advance a marginal syllabus that addresses the common theme of writing our civic futures. And so there's additional information online about the marginal syllabus, our partnership with the National Writing Project, this year's uh, syllabus. And again, Erica, as our partner author in the month of April, we're just so thankful that you've joined this conversation, that you've contributed your writing and your scholarship in this public way, and that we'll see our public conversation uh, move into other digital spaces in the coming weeks. Thanks, Ramey. So now I want to invite, you know, our readers, which includes Ramey and myself, and as, as well as Paul, who's joined us for the, you know, for the express purpose of just kind of having this reader conversation. I I'd like to start with you, Paul. I know, you know, you're very familiar to a lot of folks in National Writing Project circles, and you're really familiar with this work. So I'm kind of curious what stood out to you about this piece, what questions you might have for Erica, but knowing you have so much background about this work, I just kind of wonder what you're sort of, what you were thinking as you read the piece. Sure. Uh, thanks, Joe. And that was uh, such a powerful synopsis that, that Erica gave of the work. One of the things that, that I um, immediately took away from, from reading her piece was, um, was just this scaffolded structure uh, these um, sort of five uh, different areas that that emerged um, that to me seem like uh, exploded out could could really be a, an effective um, pathway or an effective uh, uh, path for a, a teacher to to really uh, get her or his students uh, to a point where um, they are engaging. In, in an online space, and, and so I was just really excited to see that uh, that structure that emerged out of this piece. Um, I think, in a in sort of a more visceral way, I, I thought a lot about the experiences of being in the classrooms with teachers who were doing this work, and um, one area in particular that that I thought could really use. Um, uh, perhaps um, an exploding out or, uh, you know, more context potentially. Um, or I just think it would be interesting to hear stories related to uh, this particular area was the, um, the, 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 the idea of becoming part of a dialogic community um, for young people. Because I think one of the things that struck me that uh, I think 
Erica, I'm sure, did not have um, room to include, was this what, what was the idea of um, students own online identities and 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 whether they whether they even had those online identities uh, that they brought um, to the the dialogic uh, community. Um, it, in some ways, it felt like a step prior to even being a part of that dialogic community. It was what do I understand about online spaces? Where do I interact generally? And and what sort of prior knowledge am I bringing into this you know more academic space? Um, and so, just as an example, um, I, I have this clear memory of working with uh, a young person who, um, as she was completing her profile on Youth Voices, uh, she she basically turned to the teacher and asked, um, should I lie as she was completing this profile? And, and you know, for her, the notion of being truthful about herself in a profile was, was not a given um, because of the, the spaces in which she interacted. Um, and so, so that was really eye-opening to me in terms of just what is the starting point and what are our assumptions about what young people know and understand and are able to do in online spaces before we even dive into something as complex as, as engaging in um, civic and civil discourse. So I think, so just to say this idea of scaffolding, I think is really important. I, I think these uh, five areas um, make so much sense and, and, and really could be an important foundation for other educators. Um, and, and I also would love to see um, perhaps you know, some more context. I think the, the other thing that I would just raise quickly, and I'd be curious to hear what, what the other readers think about this. Uh, I think that, well, a couple of things. One, th there are so many spaces in, in um, there's so many online spaces in which young people are engaging with each other. And, and I think Youth Voices had and has um, these particular affordances um, for young people, which I think came out in Erica's piece. But I think that there's also a question of what are the affordances for educators? Um, in other words, what makes it possible for educators, and I think Erica does touch on this to some extent when I believe in her piece, a, a teacher talks about how um, she was wondering, how do I get a student um, to go beyond, that's great, or I can't remember exactly what the you know, sort of superficial phrase was, but it's, it's both, um, how do, you, how do you support educators in getting to that place, um, what, what tools they need, but how do you also provide the kinds of supports for educators that will allow them to be in conversation with each other around the, the work that's happening um, to, to then support their students? Um, what, what is the sort of, uh, what is the community for educators? Uh, and, and is that necessary? Uh, because, for instance, if your young people are interacting on Twitter, um, you know, is it necessary for educators to be in conversation with each other? Uh, so th th those were a couple of, I mean, I could go on, I, I want to leave room for others, but those were a couple of things that, that I really thought about and, and struck me as I was doing the work and then was reminded of as I was reading Erica's piece. I don't know, does anyone have a reaction to that, uh, to, to any of those pieces? I'm just curious that I brought up. I have a few. I want to perhaps bookmark one for maybe later in this conversation, um, which kind of makes the jump from youth voice and youth civic action to educators. And so, Paul, since you just mentioned it, and again, let's bookmark it and maybe circle back. Um, you know, you talk about putting educators in conversation with each other, and I think you, you talked about a kind of community for educators. As Erica, I was looking at your model earlier, and again, I'm, if I keep looking down because I'm scribbling all these notes on, on, on all this paper over our steps. Um, I was looking at your graphic, Erica, of the five scaffolds, which uh, you also described in the article as kind of five uh, stages of, of opportunity. And I thought about how, of course, relevant they are to the kind of emerging model of professional conversation and dialogue that is emerging around the marginal syllabus. So I don't want to get too meta right off the bat, but I was very kind of shocked in your presentation, Erica, and Paul, in your conversation about how relevant the kind of dialogic practices of a community that then begins to move from analysis and expression into action is both reflected in work that's happening with youth and also work that's happening with, with educators. So maybe we want to unpack that, but again, I kind of want to maybe bookmark that for, for, for possibly later because 
so much of this, of course, does concern work directly with youth. Um, and I'm curious in one of um, uh, the points that Paul brought up around affordances for educators. And, and Paul, when I heard you say that, I was thinking first, technically, yes, there are technical affordances to whatever platforms may exist for educators to do this work. But then I was reminded, Erica, of your methods and the fact that three of the educators were participating from the same place, Oakland, and were then connecting with a fourth educator who was in Utah, if I got that geography all correct. So I was wondering if there were kind of social affordances, social connections between the educators in Oakland that may have been different from their interactions with the educator in Utah, and how those types of affordances informed the way that they then subsequently worked with youth. Anyways, I'm just kind of curious about that. Maybe that leads somewhere, maybe it doesn't. I don't want to cut off anyone else, but is it okay to jump in? Okay. Because <laughs> um, I'm eager to hear everyone's thoughts, but um, I think, well, I love this connection to thinking about um, what does this mean for a community of educators? And also, you know, how do we think about the sort of social affordances that happened for the educators in Oakland versus um, the teacher who was virtual, um, virtually connecting with them? And I think one thing I would say is that um, we did we did find that um, there are a number of the uh, teachers that were involved in the study, but also other teachers um, in Oakland who have continued doing this. And I think some of that is is their um, innovation, and they have continued to put a lot of time and effort into this. And some of it is that there are a group of them that continue to meet. So I actually meet with a group of teachers in Oakland every few months um, to talk with them about their sort of practices around um, online dialogue and online publishing for their students. And so in particular, I think the thing that that group really offers each other that, that you know, both of you are sort of indicating is that they're able to continue to wrestle with some of these questions in their practice. Like, they're able to talk with each other about, you know, what is coming up with your students when um, they are commenting, um, is there any sort of conflict that happens? How do you respond to that? So when situations come up, they're able to talk with each other about that. I think the other really important thing is that they, it also helps them in just the logistical aspects of connecting their classrooms. So they become, their students become an audience for one another. So the teachers will share about, I'm getting ready to do this. Um, students are getting ready to post about issues that they're researching in their community. Is anyone available to come on and have their students comment, to read and comment? And I think one of the things that's really important that is often um, just hard to <laughs> coordinate is just the aspect of really having a real audience. So oftentimes, I think one, one of the things that's, that's challenging and I think Peter Levine talks about this in, in his work is like the audience problem, right? By young people just putting their work out there does not online, does not necessarily mean that they're gonna connect to a relevant and authentic audience. So how, setting up those kinds of structures for teachers to really have an audience, whether that's um, peers within the same school, um, whether it's class periods that you kind of match up with each other, whether it's other schools in the same district as, we, as we've been able to sort of organize in Oakland, or if it's the kind of community of youth voices and the National Writing Project teachers that have connected through various online spaces to then give each other an audience. I think that is incredibly meaningful for students and for teachers to sort of connect around that. Yeah, I'm, I guess I think there's a few things I'm thinking about as I'm hearing you guys, um, you all share out your thoughts about the pieces. I'm really familiar with the, the uh, youth voices work. And so I have to say like the actual reading of the text, I probably impeded my, me doing a really good job of reading the text just because I'm familiar with the work. I was kind of surprised, like I'm even looking for the name Paul Allison in here, but I, you know, so that the notion that like I'm familiar with this work and I think like, that might will definitely probably inform like my annotations, but I'm kind of wondering a reader who's sort of unfamiliar with youth voices, 
what are the questions they they would bring to this. I think I really agree with both Ramey and Paul that your introduction is really helpful in terms of laying a conceptual background for folks to then maybe ask questions about a site like Youth Voices and how does it do these things. Because I, I also know that sometimes the online discourse that can seem overly familiar, if we all know the Youth Voices work and we are all doing, then it can really sound like a, a siloed conversation about something we're, we're insiders with. And so I just appreciate like your background. And I'm also noticing that, you know, I have, I have questions about the text, but more familiarity with the work. So anywho, that's one of my reflections. One thing I will say, uh, one thing that ha usually happens in these, in these um, meetings is people will like hold up their article to show that they've actually like written notes. So they sort of came prepared and it's sort of proof that you read something, right? And uh, <laughs> so, so one of the things I noticed was that I highlighted on the first page that conflict or fears of backlash may also diminish youth engagement. The fear of backlash or conflict would be a reason they might not want to engage in online. I wonder if that's changed significantly since you've done this research, if, the, if contemporary events are kind of like exacerbating that fear for students. And then on page two, um, I highlighted the, the line, in order to not replicate political inequality, all students need opportunity to learn how to discuss civic and political issues. And I guess those two lines, I was like wondering, okay, what has changed since that research? Because it seems like in both cases, those, those situations may have become sort of more serious. There might be more reluctance to engage in a fractious conversation online and the equity implications of sitting on the sidelines might be bigger. I wonder what you all think. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think one thing that, um, you know, while I think there are many challenges to integrating this kind of work, just in that there's sort of logistical challenges in terms of like access to computers and Wi-Fi and those sorts of things, but there's also challenges in terms of finding time and space to embed this in your, you know, existing curriculum. But I also feel like it's so critical to really think about ways to do this equitably because we... We, I do see how, you know, young people are obviously using digital tools and they're engaging in dialogue online, but are all young people doing it for civic and political purposes in a way that feels very productive and skilled? Um, and we see examples of many young people who are, so I don't mean to say they aren't, but I think we do continually hear, um, you know, there, there, has been, there have been some studies where young people really say that, you know, the kinds of support that they get um, are really lacking and that they would, you know, be eager for more of this. And I think that what we often see in research of civic learning is that then those supports are very inequitable. So they often happen outside of classroom spaces in sort of after school clubs or after school activities um, that aren't accessible to all young people or they're happening in sort of higher track classes. Um, and so we then see these sort of inequitable distribution of these opportunities and then the, you know, we're sort of replicating this inequality of who feels like their voice can be heard and who feels like they can sort of navigate this sort of system online. And so I think that's a really important issue to bring up. And I, I on the second point that you were mentioning, I think um, there has been a recent study that came out of the UCLA Graduate School of Education where they, they did a number of um, interview, they did a number of surveys with teachers across the country and then also followed up um, doing some interviews where they talked to teachers about teaching and learning since the 2016 election and what have been some of the impacts of that. And, I, and one of the pieces, there are a number of pieces in this report, but one of the pieces um, was really focused on dialogue and the kind of um, increase in hate speech and the increase in um, dialogue that is really fraught with conflict um, that teachers have seen in the classroom. And so that has made them, um, many teachers, more um, hesitant to sort of bring up these kinds of civic and political issues, even in person, right? So then that tells us like what's happening in online dialogue, I think is, is also something to really pay attention to. Erica, I, I really appreciate you saying that. And one of the annotations that I <laughs> 
I highlighted it and kind of circled on, on my reading of your article when I printed it out, was the fact that your article carries a date, which I really like, uh, and not just a date of publication, but a literal day of the year, June 27th, 2016, which is really kind of at the beginning of a summer of political and civic dialogue, at least in an American context, that became, and we are increasingly learning, <laughs> was pretty consequential to the current direction of our democracy. And so I think about just because of that and having the literal date stamped on this article as really situating this in a particular historical moment and thinking about the way in which it both reflects advances and understanding of civic dialogue at the time. And as you just mentioned, helps to almost foreshadow some of the outstanding challenges and opportunities that have become so critical since June 27th, 2016. So in any case, I really resonate with what you're saying and I appreciate that that's an element of the text that we're reading together. And I'll, I'll just jump in and say that um, I did not print out a copy. And so I, I cannot hold up my version in the way that everyone else is doing. Um, uh, so apologies for that. Um, but I will say that uh, another, another area, uh, well, so, and, and I think this, this definitely is um, a strand that we should continue on because I think, I think it is really critical, this, this idea, um, you know, these ideas relate to equity. And so I, I don't uh, necessarily, I mean, I, I, I am gonna stray from it, but um, I think we should return to it. Um, but uh, another area in, in your piece, Erica, that, that really struck me was, um, was this notion of the, the young people from Oakland, from these classes, interacting with young people in, in Utah. And, and, and just what, what that meant in terms of um, just really being able to uh, engage with a, a group of students who who came from uh, you know a very different two groups of students um, generally that came from uh, very different contexts and and had very different lived experiences and how they interacted with one another and um, just just the the implications of of that I'm, as an example I, I remember I think as part of this project. Um, and I think you, you touch upon this, um, students in Oakland were doing field research, I think, and they were trying to understand aspects of, of uh, uh, perhaps driving under the influence or the use of alcohol. And um, students in Utah, as, as part of a sort of video chat between these two groups, the students in Utah, um, you know, their, their response to this field research question was, uh, you know, there, there's there's no alcohol in in our community, and I think I think I am getting the story right. I think and it was liquor stores. Or liquor stores. That's right. They were they were sort of documenting how many liquor stores were in which neighborhoods in Oakland. Uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. As as. And then you tell they were like liquor stores. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And 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 the students in Oakland. Um, I mean, you could see visibly how 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 that just you know blew their minds. I mean, they, they, could, they could not conceive of a place like this. And, and I think um, that level of interaction, that, that level of, of field research, uh, you know, that expands beyond um, your own personal context and really incorporates you know, this, this, this really different community um, just, just really struck me as, as something that uh, is, is so critical in terms of just even being being able to understand um, what what it is that you know uh, for for a young person um, how to pursue and and how to really understand you know the, the question that you're asking um, because a lot of this really you know uh, and, and what you're analyzing because a lot of it depends on on context and and who you're asking and from where um so yeah so I I guess I, I didn't really pose a question there other than uh, that that piece um, you know really struck me that. Uh, because I think because of my recollection of how that played out um, and how effective that was, I think, for young people to, to do that sort of field research using this kind of uh, online space and platform. 
Yeah, and I think an interesting thing to add to that that I've seen not only on Youth Voices, but in working with other teachers that use EduBlogs is that students will often use their blogs as a way to do research so that it's a way for them to sort of get comments and responses to something that they want to understand more deeply in other spaces. And we'll also, you know, link to something like a, you know, a survey or they might, you know, then connect and interview people. So I think it is a way it, it can lead to other ripples of, you know, ways that, that students can connect with one another or to be able to sort of understand these issues from various different perspectives. Yeah, and I appreciate a couple of things. I think Paul's comment illustrates how, you know, the connection between these two communities, like it illustrated for the students some utility of the, for the internet beyond a place of just, you know, tough political discourse, right? The notion that there's, there's some utility to this public good that can, you know, that they can tangibly experiment with is, is awesome. And I really appreciate the, you know, the community centered research about you know, how many liquor stores, et cetera, that kind of thing. Just to name one thing that I, I've noticed on the Youth Voice site that I think is, is also powerful, but really accessible is in addition to students starting by just commenting on other folks, other, other user youth's pieces, is they will also um, increasingly now like students will get on there and say, "Hey, I'm researching this. Here's my inquiry question. I'm looking for help." And then, so a really sort of low stakes way to invite a class to participate is you look for some credible sources that you can share with one to ten students, and you can offer them reading resources with comments about why it's credible. And that that notion that you know you can help another researcher very quickly. You can think about a place where you're crowdsourcing something. Anyway, I thought that was interesting and related to the research thread. So I do wanna, I know we've got maybe a few minutes, wanna ask the question that gets a little meta about this model, if that's, if that's appropriate. You know, especially because we've really dug into, and particularly with Paul's most recent example of helping us to understand some of the field-based community field work that really got youth into neighborhoods as learning laboratories. And I, I love that kind of work. It resonates with work that I used to do myself in New York City. But if, if it's okay with, with, with folks, I'd love to get some perspective on thinking about, um, Erica, your earlier comments about the fact that one, you said dialogue is key for democracy. And yet, productive models for such civic discourse online may be few and far between. And the scaffolds, the opportunities that you shared earlier, I guess I'd like to start with the question, although I'm kind of excited to potentially jump to an instance, but the question of where we see such productive models of online civic discourse exists for educators. And in asking that question, you know, are they just Twitter chats? And does it, is there something to be said about the fact that, you know, a corporation like Twitter is the kind of mediator of those civic conversations? Or are there other spaces uh, that have been designed in different kinds of ways that are providing for educators the professional learning that might help them to then subsequently enact the kinds of practices, Erica, that you've written about in this article. I, I hope that makes some sense. You know, if I could jump in for a moment, um, I'm not sure if Erica's trying to unmute, um, but just, just to fill the space. Um, so what, what, I think your question is so interesting, Ramey, because I think, and I think it gets at, um, you know, perhaps what I was really unable to articulate eloquently, um, which, which is the, the, the affordances of youth voices for educators in that I think what, what's so interesting to know about youth voices um, is that it, it's a space that was developed really, I mean, the National Rhyme Project supported this work, but it was really a, an educator, um, Paul Allison, who Joe mentioned earlier, who created this space. And I think because it was created by an educator who, who also was essentially the, the tech support person. I mean, he was the super admin of the site. 
I, I think beyond just wanting the site to work technically, which is perhaps you know what you might find in some other spaces, he wanted, uh, I think, and had this idea that that the the site would be a place where um, educators as a community could not just support one another but support the site itself, and that and that um, and, and that that educators would learn from one another in terms of, um, and then would be able to, to some extent, you know, do for themselves um, what they needed to do to, to make the site run. And so I feel like there was just a, um, a the, the motives behind what could happen uh, at Youth Voices uh, just seemed to be not clouded by, you know, say the interests of a more corporate space like say Twitter. And um, and I think I think that's interesting. I, I'm 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 curious. I mean, I'd be curious to hear um, Erica's take on the 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 difference between say use uh, using and utilizing a space like Youth Voices versus versus say using EduBlogs, um, uh, you know, another uh, different sort of platform. Um, because I, I I do think that there there are just you know these. Um, there, there, there are things about Youth Voices because of uh, the way in which it was constructed and the rationale behind why it was constructed the way it is that really allows for a different kind of, my hypothesis is it allows for a different kind of civic discourse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, it's such a good question. And I, I have, um, you know, heard teachers wrestle with this too, that, you know, I had one teacher sort of describe to me that, Youth Voices, the reason she had chosen to use that um, was because it was like a small pond within the ocean of the internet. And she felt like that small pond gave her students the opportunity to develop and explore that academic and political identity in a way that didn't overlap or merge with the other kinds of social identities that they were building online so that they had the space to kind of figure that out and wrestle with that in a way that wasn't as vulnerable. Um, and at the same time, you know, I think that many teachers who are on EduBlogs that I've talked with a few teachers, you know, there isn't the, because of the structure of that site, there isn't necessarily the automatic audience that you get unless you really set that up, right? So. Um, you know, it is open to anyone to look at it. Anyone can sort of comment on it. Um, and at the same time, there's not the same kind of structures of community that I think there are built into youth voices. Um, I think that doesn't mean it can't happen. It's just that, you know, there have been a network of teachers that have been supporting youth voices to make that possible. Um, the other thing I would say is that I, I know a lot of teachers have used Twitter and used the kind of Twitter chats or the kind of, uh, you know, have used different hashtags to kind of engage in conversation. And I think that has been really exciting for young people in different ways because they really can then connect to a broader audience that's not just youth. So, but at the same time, that does mean that the, it's sort of open to anyone to respond. Um, so I think it's, it's complicated. And I think a lot of, I, I do know of teachers who've just made decisions to stick with one platform and other teachers have, who've decided to use multiple platforms and then to really talk about what are the similarities and differences between these two and what are the things that you need to take into account when you're posting something on Twitter versus youth voices. What does that mean? And who has access to that and who can engage with that? Um, I will say that I think, um, you know, other, I think there are other platforms out there that are like Youth Voices that are, are, that are emerging. So I know that KQED has just developed a platform called KQED Learn, um, and that that, again, is sort of a safe space where people have to have a profile, you have to be connected to a school, um, and that you're sort of posting in this sort of community. Um, and so it gives that, that sort of opportunity um, in a small pond. <laughs> so I might invite, first, I... Uh... I might invite folks to just think about like maybe what's a what's a key takeaway as we kind of near near an hour in on this conversation, and I feel like we covered some important ground. So maybe what's a what's a uh, a key takeaway or a key question you'll bring to a a further reading of this, or what you'll take into the 
the act of annotating online, maybe. Um, yeah, let me just throw that out there. I can, I can certainly start, and, and, and I'll start again by thanking both Paul for joining us today and certainly Erica as our partner author uh, for the marginal syllabus in the month of April. Um, and what I'm going to bring into the annotations that I'll share publicly when that phase of our conversation develops uh, is this question about productive models and the productive models of civic discourse that leverage particular both social and technical affordances of various media how educators create those for their students based upon the scaffolds that Erica has so expertly described in this article, but then also how educators either create or participate in those same kinds of models for the purpose of their own professional learning. And so some of those questions and comments are certainly gonna appear in, in what I subsequently share online. And I can jump in and say that I think what um, what's really interesting to me is uh, thinking ahead and and really uh, wondering about uh, what what from this from a from a classroom teacher's perspective who is not involved in this work uh, what from this seems seems feasible doable what you know what could they imagine being able to implement in their classroom um, what, what, how do they see uh, th this structure, this model, as 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 being um, workable uh, for them? Um, so I think that sort of uh, concrete level is, I think, where I'll be um, living in terms of the annotations. Well, I'm happy to share a thought. Um, well, first of all, it's just so helpful to. June 2016 wasn't that long ago, but it feels like a really long time. <laughs> so it's really wonderful to engage with this piece again with you all and to hear your um, insights and questions. Um, and it, it does just, uh, you know, I'm really compelled to sort of read this again, thinking about the current context that we're in and what does that mean for young people and how we support them. Um, and what does that mean for educators and how we also support them and connect them with each other to really think about how to do this. And I, I love the question of like, how can we continue to think about productive models um, and, and ways to really reflect on um, how we wanna build more. <laughs> Terrific, and I'd like to again offer my thanks to both you, Erica, and you, Paul, for joining us and having this conversation. I really, really look forward to the conversation we'll have in the margins. And I think my last thought is just, I'm always interested in the potential of what might lay in the margins, especially knowing that the Youth Voices community is so supportive. And we also might attract educators to this piece who would be asking questions of such an invitational community. I think the margins might serve an interesting, as an interesting pivot point in this month. So I'm looking forward to see what, seeing what happens there. Um, and then finally, um, thanks to everyone again. And, and so now, uh, if you'd like to keep up to date on future opportunities, I'd like to remind you to please sign up for the monthly newsletter at educatorinnovator.org and follow Educator Innovator on Twitter at, at innovates underscore ed. So thanks again, everyone.